You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Uh, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to First uh, Peter. Uh, we'll be in chapter two, as Danny just read. And just a quick word, um, a quick word about those videos. Our scripture readings, all through First and Second Peter, are going to come from just ministry partners that we have. And, um, and, and I really want you to take that seriously. So this week you'll see a social media post focusing um, uh, on Send Network, which Danny um, is a part of. And, um, and as you heard in the video, uh, their, their effort this year in West Virginia is to plant two Spanish-speaking churches, which is exciting, and, um, and to revitalize two declining churches. And so I want you to take those seriously and just be in prayer for, um, for that effort each week as we kind of focus on different church partnerships, churches we've planted, and then organizations that we partner with at a bigger level, okay? Um, I've got three sermon points for you note takers. Um, I'll go ahead and give those to you. Number one, I want you to see the church is the people of God. Um, we'll talk about the ecclesiology of, of the Bible, which means the study of the church. Um, so I want to straighten out some ecclesiology and make sure theologically you're sound on that, that the church is the people of God. I'll define what the church is. Um, secondly, we'll see that the church is eternal, that it is God's people that are made to exist with him for eternity. And thirdly, we'll look at the church being our citizenship, or um, we could even also say our identity, our, our main uh, priority in who we are as people and individuals. Okay, So let's jump right into the first point. The church is the people of God. Now, I grew up in church, and um, I was just talking to my daughter about the weird practice we used to do of when it was your birthday. Um, you would go up front and the church would sing happy birthday to you and they couldn't remember your name. And so they'd say, happy birthday, God loves you. And you had to give the church money on your birthday instead of the church giving you stuff on your birthday. And um, it's just a kind of weird practice. So we don't do that at this church, but if it's your birthday, God does love you. Um, so remember that. But I also learned this song. Um, you remember this one? That This is the church and this is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the bad theology. You remember that? Um, <clears throat> and we were taught like, <laughs> and and I, you know, I went to seminary and I got real nitpicky on my theology, right? And so we were taught that okay, here's the people, but they come inside this building with the steeple on it, and that's what the church is. Um, well, I, I want to clarify a lot of that today because we see in this passage in First Peter two that that is not what the church is. That the church is the people. Open, open the doors of a building and see the church is the theologically accurate way to sing that children's song. And, and I don't want to be too harsh because I understand that um, we struggle to have a name. Like when we moved into this building and after renting um, a school for seven years, like we didn't have the issue of trying to figure out like is the church the people? Because yeah, we didn't have a building. Uh, but once we moved in here, um, some of y'all were like direct victims of me being real nitpicky when you called this building the church. Church, I'd be like, uh-uh, that's just a building with garage doors. Don't call it the church. We're the church. And, and so, like, if you want to call this building the church, I understand that, and I do that, and that's, that's okay, um, as long as we know in our hearts theologically that we are the church. Because we don't have a, a real good name in English for a gathering place for worship specifically. Maybe sanctuary would come close, but it doesn't really encompass the whole building. The Jews had what they would call a synagogue, which was a, a structure that was built for that gathering. We don't quite have a, an equivalent in English, and we, we have other areas in the English language that we have a similar thing, like a school, for example, could describe the student body itself, or a school can describe the building. 
Um, and then even probably more common that we see week after week and day after day that we don't really pay attention to is branding of corporations on buildings and structures. So, for example, Walmart. If I ask you what Walmart is, you could say, well, it's, it's off the Barbersville exit or off the Hurricane exit. Or uh, you could say Walmart is a, a large corporation. So what Walmart actually is, is, a, is an entity, an institution, a corporation. But when we go to Walmart, we don't say, I'm going to the local Walmart store. Some of you guys say the Walmart because that's how because you're rednecks. But um, but we we typically don't clarify. I'm going to the Walmart local store. We just say I'm going to Walmart. Um, we're not going to a corporate meeting with Walmart. And so church in in the English language is similar. Um, so we can say church to refer to the building we gather in. Um, but I, I would also like to normalize saying I'm going to church when I go to someone's house for small group. I'm going to church. I'm going to be with the family of God. Or when I'm grabbing coffee with a brother or sister, like we're being the church. And so theologically, I know the church is the people of God and not a building. And the reason it's so important for us to get this right is because if in our minds, church is a building, we'll go to it. In our minds, if church is an event, we will attend it and we will shop for the most pleasant experience. But if in our minds and in our hearts, church is a family, we won't go to it and we won't shop for it, we'll belong to it. And that's what I want you to understand, New Heights, is that church is not just a building you go to or an event that you attend, but rather it's a family that you belong to. And this is what God has called us into as the church. He's called us into an identity in a family where God is our heavenly father and we exist together corporately. Let's look at this passage that describes it in Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is a beautiful description of the church. It's dripping, by the way, with Old Testament Imagery, so much so that I ran so many references in studying for my sermon this week that I could not fit all the Old Testament references in the sermon. You'd miss lunch if, if I went through them all, okay? So if you want further study on this, there's a lot more that I could unpack because Peter references it just, just quickly a lot of Old Testament passages as he's quoting them in the passage we look at today. So I want to show you some of those. First of all, though, I want you to see that verse 4 is referring back to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. Um, him referring back to Lord in verse 3. Jesus Christ is the living stone. Peter's making the case that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Now, if you're a, if you're a, a construction worker or you're adequate at building things, you know that when you set a cornerstone for a building, um, if you're a mason and you're building with bricks or block, the cornerstone is going to set the, the alignment for the rest of the structure. And so the cornerstone is the most important stone that you will lay. And, and the cornerstone, Peter's going to say, is Christ. And he is chosen by God, verse 4 says, and he is precious in the sight of the Father. And then Peter applies that, um, that chosen and precious yet rejected by the world to the church, to us, we who are redeemed by Christ. Isn't that our story? We are rejected by the world. We are misunderstood by the world, yet we are accepted and loved graciously by our Father. And so as elect exiles, we collectively make up God's temple. 
It's a, it's a corporate illustration. Peter builds on the imagery here of the Old Testament temple, which was built block by block in this giant structure. Uh, the temple in the Old Testament was the center for worship, and it was seen as the dwelling place of God. Jesus had prophesied in his life that the temple would be destroyed, and Peter is actually writing his letter that we're reading today before that prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple, and, and it was uh, prophesied, and it actually happened in A.D. 70. Peter's writing in A.D. 62, or maybe as late as 64, but definitely before the destruction of the temple. So what God was doing in writing this letter, inspiring this letter through Peter, he was already preparing his church to be nomadic and universal and not feel like they have to gather in one place or take pilgrimages to one place. God's church is his people. His dwelling place is his people. We are living stones built around Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine it's your birthday coming up. It might be. I'm probably not going to get you a present because there's a lot of you. But imagine I did, and I bought you for your birthday a brick, a singular brick. I wrap it up in my you know, fancy presentation, I give it to you. And it's not a fancy brick like I donated money to some university and they put your name on a brick or anything. It's just a brick. It's just a plant. I go to the brick store where they sell bricks, you know, and I just buy a brick and I give it to you. And, and I, you know, what are you going to do with it? It's not really a good gift. It's not really valuable. It's not really that useful. It's a really overly heavy paperweight. Um, there's not a whole lot you can do with it. But now imagine I add quantity to it. Right? I have Lowe's deliver you know, pallets and pallets of bricks to you. What do you got now? Well, now you've got something you can work with, right? But it's still just a pile of bricks. If you're not a mason or if you don't have uh, the skills to lay brick, you, it might still be useless to you. If you don't have the tools or the materials to put them together. But now I add a quality to it, not just quantity. You add skill. You add a bricklayer. Um, I pay for someone to come and put it together for you. Now they can build you a structure that might be useful to you. And the illustration that Peter goes on is, that, is, is a corporate illustration. It's not an individual illustration. Peter's making the point that we all come together as living stones to form the dwelling place of God. And that doesn't happen individually. It happens collectively. This is a beautiful picture of the church because as the church is defined as God's called out people, it is plural by its very nature. And so we're called to be together, to live together, to experience life together in God's covenant family. And then we become the dwelling place of God. And then what, what happened in the temple? Well, the priests brought glory to God. They uh, constituted worship to God. And so what does verse 5 say our job is as priests? Verse 5 says that we're a holy priesthood, that we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's that mean? That's a lot of things. That's worship. That's devotion. That's prayer. That's um, evangelism. That's a lot of different things. 1 Corinthians 10.31 encompasses everything to God's glory. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That, that's pretty clear, right? That means everything you do has the potential to be a worshipful experience. That everything is done to glorify your God. Romans 12 is uh, written by Paul, but Peter uses a lot of the same theological terms as Paul does in Romans 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That phrase in Greek is the same, gird up the loins of your mind that Peter uses earlier in chapter one. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we live as living stones, as priests in God's temple, but the temple is mobile. The temple is everywhere. The temple is at your workplace. The temple is at your family gatherings. The temple is at your hobbies. The temple is everywhere. Where God's people go, the church goes. And so we're called to invite people into that. This should, this should really put a lot of weight on when you invite someone to church. It's, it, you're not just inviting them to a concert or an experience or a building. You're inviting them into your family. My mom, y'all, most of y'all know my mom, right? She's like the advocate of New Heights. People come to the church for whatever reason. They find us online or, you know, somebody invites them. But some people, some people come and go and they leave. But the people that stay, they stay for Kathy Basham. That's what I always say. <laughs> they stay because of her. Um, they just put up with the preaching, but they stay for Kathy Basham. But I, I can remember mom just inviting lots of people to our Sunday suppers all the time at my Nana's house. And we would all kind of cram in there. And there were people that would show up that were kind of weird that we didn't really love all that much. But like, but we learned to love them because mom taught us that. And they were not just invited to dinner. They were, they were kind of welcomed into the family, all the weirdness of the Basham clan. Like they were invited into all of that. And this is what we're called to do as the church. We're a family. And so I, I just wanted to ask you, are, are you, are you doing that? As a, if, if you're born again, if you've repented and trusted Jesus, you're called a priest in God's temple, and you're supposed to be bringing people in, mediating like priests do. Lifeway Research did a study um, in the past decade, and, and it indicated that 71% of people who don't actively go to church now would go with you if you would invite them. Does that mean you're going to get rejected? Yeah, statistically, probably 30% of the time, maybe more like 50% of the time um, if after, after COVID's applied. But, but man, that's still pretty pretty good percentage if you're in Major League Baseball, right? I mean, you're batting 500 there. And so the the call for us is to be priestly and look for avenues, not just to invite people to an event that we think will change their life, but invite them into a family that will change their lives. And it's, it's a family that's eternal. So the second thing I want you to see is that the church is eternal. I want to define this very clearly. I went to a, a conference one time and heard a, a prominent pastor preach and, and he said something along the lines of, of this. I'll loosely quote him, but he, he basically said, our church is kingdom minded and we're not focused on our church. And the reason is, is because the church is temporary, but God's kingdom is eternal. And the, theologically, like that, that just didn't really like sit real good with me because I understand what he meant by it. But the reality is, is that God's kingdom is his people. God's kingdom is his church. And so I want you to understand this family that you join when you repent of sin and trust Jesus and you become the church, that doesn't expire when Jesus comes back. You remain the church for eternity because it's been God's plan all along. And I want to define church clearly. In the New Testament, uh, the Greek language calls church, what's translated as church is ekklesia, which means called out ones. The most literal translation of what church is, is people who are called out. 
What are they called out of? This passage actually tells us that we're called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. We are called out of sin and into holiness. We are called out and redeemed by Jesus. That's what it means to be part of the church. You are the called out ones. Now, we can't assign meaning to the church that's not in the original language that it's written in. That's what it means. Very simply, called out ones. Now, in the Old Testament, a lot of people say the church isn't in the Old Testament. I would say that it is. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, um, but it was translated before uh, Jesus' time. It it was translated into Greek. So 70 rabbis wrote um, a translation called the Septuagint, um, which which gave light to the the Hebrew scriptures translated into the Greek language. And that uh, translation uses the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones, uses the word ekklesia 77 times to refer to God's people in the Old Testament. So the first century rabbis had no problem calling the Old Testament saints church. And the New Testament Christians, the apostles, did not feel the need to come up with a new word to describe what God was doing in the New Covenant. It's still God's church, God's people redeemed, called out of all times, all places, saved by the work of God himself. And so Peter begins to, I think, make a point that this has been God's plan all along. Remember, Peter is a Jew writing as a, as, a, as a man who's grown up in the nation of Israel, but he's writing to people who didn't grow up in Israel. He's writing to Gentiles, non-Jewish people who have repented of sins and joined the church. And there was a lot of like Hebrew nationalism at the time that, that there was views that, okay, once Gentiles become Christians, they still have to come to Jerusalem. They still have to come to the temple, which was still standing at that point. They still have to convert to all of our racial and national type of traditions. And Peter was one of the world's worst at this, right? If, if Peter was doing like an internship with our church uh, and he wanted to be a pastor, he would be one of the ones I'd like, eh, maybe I got some reservations on this guy. Right? He's cutting people's ears off. He, there, there's, a, there's an account in the Bible where he's just got some blatant racism and Paul has to get up in his face and call him out on it because he's refusing to sit down and eat a meal with people who aren't Jewish. Could you imagine that? People from another country come and you say, I'm not willing to share a meal with them. That's what Peter was doing, the guy who wrote this letter. But in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see redemptive um, effort and repentance in Peter where he has moved on from his racist, fleshly mindset and he says uh, very clearly that God's people are now national, uh, um, uh, worldwide, that, that they're made into a nation, a new covenant. And so the point is, he begins to unpack this from the Old Testament. Verse 6, it says, it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah 28. The verse before that, by the way, is written to Jewish people. And so it's clear that, that Jewish people were not saved just because of the nation they were born into. And I know that sounds silly to us, but we need to make sure we understand that very clearly, that we're not, we're not Christian by default because we're born in a Christian nation or what we think to be a Christian nation. And that doesn't make people who are born in a Muslim nation off limits for who God can save, by the way. In the same passage, Isaiah 28, 15, the verse right before what Peter quotes, it says to the Jews, um, you have said, we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. It makes it clear that people who were supposed to be God's people had placed their hope not in God, but in 
their own lies and falsehood and sin and death. Elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 8, in the same book, the prophet Isaiah writes, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Peter shows that this did not take God by surprise when a lot of Jewish people rejected Jesus. He quotes that exact passage in verse 7. 1 Peter 2, 7 says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember that pivotal piece of a building that Peter calls living stones, the church. Verse 8 says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This passage, this whole chapter one and first part of chapter two is dripping with God's sovereignty, as Peter writes. The emphasis here is that God's church is a plan that he has in place and nothing we will ever do will change that plan. We are secure in that plan. And the people who reject that plan and stumble over the cornerstone justify the Lord's wrath and holiness. The people who are obedient in that plan in God's church testify to the Lord's grace and his mercy. Peter also quotes from Psalm 118 in verse 8, a psalm that we can sing today in praise because we have been redeemed. Psalm 118, I could preach lots on Psalm 118. It's one of my favorite psalms. Um, it's, this, it's the song that the Jews sang, by the way, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Verse 21 of that song says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. <clears throat> it's marvelous in our eyes. So the point of all this I want you to see is that the church was not God's plan B. The Old Testament was not God working through the nation of Israel, and then they sucked, so he had to kind of call an audible like a quarterback and be like, all right, I'm going to do something else, and I'm going to start saving all these other nations now. No, the church is God's plan A. It always has been, it is currently, and it always will be. It's God redeeming messed up people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to his glory and for our good. That's what the church is. We need to trust that plan and be along and okay with that plan. Several years ago, uh, the Bashams went to Disney, Disney World, happiest place on earth, so they say. And there's no tired like Disney tired. Amen, wheelers? Y'all know what I'm talking about there. And, and, and I think I was tired not just from the walking. Phil Beatty can attest to this, too. He just got back from Disney. But not just the, the miles you know, that I walked and everything. I think I was most tired from my kids and all their opinions on what we should do. Right, Because you plop them down in the happiest place on earth with a million things that they want. And they're like, hey, can we do this next? Can we do this next? I'm good. And so we adopted a saying for our family that's just stuck since Disney, circa whenever we went to Disney. And the, the saying is, trust the plan. And that loosely translates to y'all shut up and trust what mom and dad are doing. We got a plan. <laughs> trust it. You're not involved in making the plan. Okay. <laughs> and as endearing as that is, that's, that's us as priests in God's living temple. We are priests, but we are not planners. 
And when we try to become the plan of God, we usurp our own authority over God's holy authority and we set ourselves up for disaster. And God's call to us is to carry out the priestly duties of exaltation and proclamation, but to trust his plan. He's not caught off guard when you hit a roadblock of trials and tribulation. Trust his plan. When you're stumbling in grief or fear or doubt, you can trust his plan because he's got it figured out. He always has and he always will. The last point is the church is our citizenship. You see, being God's people is our primary identity. Now, it's not, it's not our only identity. I want to be careful how I say this because there is, there's a school of thought where that needs to be our only identity. And I'm not saying that we should reject all other identities. But I am saying that this needs to be our primary identity. As, pe- as sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, our primary identity rests in the fact that we are God's people. We are his church. We're citizens in his kingdom. That's what, that's what it is to be redeemed. That doesn't mean we cease to be American or we cease to have responsibility as husbands or wives or mothers or fathers or anything like that. But it does mean that it shapes our priorities. And when we get our priorities out of whack and we elevate husband or parent or American above all of those things, then we begin to fall and falter because we're not living as priests in a living temple as God has called us to. And what Peter does is he juxtaposes those who stumble at Christ, the disbelieving world, with those who are chosen by Christ and whose affections have been changed by God's grace. In verse 9, he gives four descriptors of what the church is, what we are as God's people. And, and it's interesting, okay, keep in mind the context of this. You have a Jewish man who's, got, who's a very prideful Jewish man, very proud of the fact that he's a Jew, and he's writing to Gentiles, people that he would have seen as beneath him, that at least at one point we see in the book of Acts that he wasn't willing to share a meal with. And now evidently God's changed his heart, and he writes this speaking of not Jews, but of Gentiles. And he says, Gentiles, elect exiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, previously these descriptors were only used for a political nation called Israel. Now they are used to describe a spiritual nation of Israel. Peter applies these terms to these elect exiles who are Gentiles. He calls them a chosen race. You see, you're born into your race and your nationality, but you're born again into the church. And Peter had to learn this, and he learned it beautifully. And he sets it up in the beginning of his first letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them elect exiles. In verse 2, he says that they're elect according to God's foreknowledge. In verse three, he says that God caused them to be born again. It wasn't their superior decision over other races or nations. In verse five, he says their salvation is guarded by God's power. And in verse 20, he says that Jesus also is foreknown just like we as Christians are foreknown. And in chapter two, verse six, he says that Jesus is chosen and precious as God's cornerstone. So we are foreknown like Jesus because of Jesus. We are chosen like like Jesus because of Jesus. Wow. What an amazing place to be, church. We're a chosen race. Doesn't mean 
The race that we have genetically is erased, but it means there is a spiritual race that we belong to that's greater than our physical one. We're also a royal priesthood. Man, I think when the Bible says anything remotely calling me royal, I almost start to doubt the Bible a little bit. Telling me I'm a prince? That's some Disney stuff right there, right? Well, we know biblically we adhere to this doctrine that we call the priesthood of all believers. When we're called a royal priesthood, that means that Jesus is our high priest and we need no other man or organization to get us to Jesus. That's why you don't have to go sit in the office and do like a confession with me while I hide in a little shadow box to hear your sins. You don't need a priest. You have a high priest in Jesus. And more than that, you are called to be a priest as well. You're called to be a priest because you are the temple of God walking about mobily and bringing worship to him every day and proclaiming his excellencies as priests were mediators in the Old Testament. You are mediators to an unbelieving world, to a holy father in heaven. And Peter here is quoting from Exodus 19. The language is very exact. Exodus 19 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. Listen to the language. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation to proclaim his excellencies. And what's beautiful about this is Peter reaches back. He's existing in the first century. He reaches back to Exodus, seeing that God called people to be priests in the past. He applies it to the present in the first century and says God calls people to be his priests in the first century, the time that Peter lived. And then the Bible also reaches into the future in Revelation 5 and calls future saints priests as well. In chapter 5 of Revelation 9 and 10, we're going to sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Verse 10 calls us this. It says, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Past, present, and future, God is doing the same thing, redeeming sinners for his glory and our good. And we're called a holy nation. You see, Israel was a political nation that God chose to bless the whole world, a, a, an ethnicity that God went to to bring his promised seed, the Messiah Jesus. But the plan was always to bless the whole world, to bless the nations. You read through, um, you read through the Abrahamic covenant. The plan in, in, that God is doing in Abram is to bless all nations, not just one. You see, God's not just after a nation. He's after all nations. And so it's good for us. It's a, probably a good cause for us to want to make America Christian. But, but I want to make the world disciples because that's what's given to me by my master Jesus. He says to go unto all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he commanded. You see, God, when we, when we just kind of lower our eyes to we need to make America more Christian, we, we're, we're selling ourselves short of a God-sized vision for the world because what God says is he wants to make one nation out of all nations, one holy nation with people from all nations, a people for his own possession, it says in verse 9. Peter explains that phrase more in verse 10. 
people, meaning plural, meaning corporate, meaning communal. And in verse 10, it says, once you were not a people. Imagine, imagine sojourners or aliens who are uh, exiled, as the, the language that Peter actually uses, from their homeland, wandering about with no identity, with no passport, and God gathers all these aliens together and gives them an identity. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, this passage is to the church corporate. And we would be good to, to read it corporately. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on this passage brings good insight here. Um, he writes in his commentary this. The focus here is on the church corporately as God's set apart priesthood in which the emphasis is likely on believers functioning as priests. Western believers tend to individualize the notion of priesthood rather than seeing the community emphasis. Man, he's spot on there. Western believers do very much tend to individualize the church experience. I know this by how many times people have talked to me and said, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. It, you cannot have one without the other. God called, I mean, if, if God's called you and saved you, you are the church. It's, it's just nonsense. Think of it this way. I want to finish by kind of telling you this embarrassing story about myself. Um, I had a quick trip um, for Acts 29, a, a meeting in Dallas this week. And so I hop on a plane. I was only gone 32 hours. And I fly back, down and back real quick. And on the way home, I love getting on a plane to West Virginia because nobody flies to West Virginia for any other reason than to come home, usually, or to visit family or something. And, um, and so, like, I always just feel like when I get on the West Virginia plane with all, like, you know, 14 people of us that are on there, it's just family time, you know. It's like we start meeting each other and whatnot. And so I get on the very back seat, as one does, and, and I'm kind of cramming into my little spot. I'm in the window seat. And, and I kinda, Amanda always makes fun of me for this, but I always like chit-chat with people, you know, like, hey, how are you? How's your day going? Where are you going? That kind of thing. And so we chit-chat a little bit, but then we get ready to take off, and I'm like, okay, now it's time for the individual experience of flying. We're not going to bother each other. I'm going to get my AirPods and put them in. I'm going to do my own thing, listen to music, take a nap, whatever. And so I put my AirPods in, and I begin to listen to music. And, and I just I can't really hear my music that well. And, and I don't know if like I had like my ears were gross or the plane was loud because it was a West Virginia plane or like what was going on. But I was like, I can't. My AirPods aren't very loud. So I turn it up, and I still can't hear it very well. And I turn it all the way up, and I still am just like, I feel like I'm barely hearing my music. And so I take my AirPod out and then I can hear it like really loud when I took my AirPod out. So you guys know what I did, right? I didn't connect my AirPods to my phone. <laughs> so I'm like a whole song in to like this really upbeat folky song with like banjo picking. And, and I have played this extremely loud and I was like the only one that couldn't really hear it. And, and like the whole back four rows of the plane had joined into my bluegrass concert. Okay. And, um, and so I, I just like, I feel like my face get hot. I'm like really embarrassed when I realize what I'd done. And there's a woman beside me. I turn to her and I'm like, I'm really sorry. I just realized I'm like blasting this music. And I was like, were you not going to say anything to me? And she was like, I just thought that's how you flew. I just, I don't know. <laughs> like you're like the plain DJ. Here we go. Um, and so, 
So I was embarrassed, and, and then like I, I apologized to like the four, the back four rows, and everybody's kind of laughing about it. And I got my AirPods connected and went back into my own world. But I started thinking about that and how embarrassing it was. And, and that's how we feel when, when we invite someone to church or when we, um, when we begin to initiate a spiritual conversation. If you've never done it, it's probably because of fear of awkwardness or embarrassment. And if you have done it, you know what I'm talking about with the awkwardness and the embarrassment. But let me tell you this. It turns into a story that you're really kind of proud to tell, even from a stage with a microphone. Um, if you open yourselves up, to sing the song of salvation loudly so that the people around you in your life can hear it. It might be embarrassing or awkward at first, but I promise in hindsight, you will never regret that. And how dare we make church an individual experience when God has called us to make it a corporate experience. He's called us to live our lives in such a way that is intrusive to other people. I don't know how many times I've talked to people about sharing their faith. And they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to impose or I don't want to bother anyone. It's, it's like, do you understand the Great Commission? If if no one imposed upon me or bothered me about the sin that was sending me straight to hell, I'd still be on my way to hell. Thank God someone interrupted me. You're called a priest of the Most High God. It's time for us to get a little bit uncomfortable. It's time for us to open our eyes to people who are around us, who've got their earbuds in, who are going about their individual experiences, not wanting to bother anybody, not wanting to have any awkward conversations. It's time to open up and be a priest to those people and say, I'd love to introduce you to my family. I want to invite you to church, not just because it's a cool event, but I want to invite you to the family that God has placed me in that I love. And it's a weird family. It's got weird cousins. The preacher's strange. But it's God's people. Peter's quoting from Hosea 2, which says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. In Hebrew, there's two names there. That, that are translated in the English Standard Version literally, which means, or which is in Hebrew, lo ruama and lo ami, which, which means uh, no mercy and not my people. The, the, it's poetic. And, and what Peter is quoting is a poetic passage in the Old Testament where God says that to, to people who were far from him, your name literally was no mercy. That was your name. It's what you were called but I'm going to call you into my mercy. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to treat you the exact opposite of your name. Your name was not my people, but I'm going to treat you like my family. This is what God has done for us. He's changed our spiritual names. He's adopted us into a new spiritual family. He has made us living stones built around a perfect cornerstone and he's called us to be priests and mediators so that more people can join this family we hope you enjoyed the podcast to learn more about new heights church or a relationship with christ please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com